Solving Sacramento. Electricity, running water, a roof over your head, a network of friends, family, a job. There are a lot of components to stability, and when you have it, you're probably not thinking about where your next meal comes from or dealing with strangers shooting you looks ranging between derision and pity all through your day. But for people on the street, sleeping in tents, on bare sidewalks, this is a regular concern, on top of an increased risk of physical assault and lack of medical services. And for everybody else, this is perhaps the most visible component to the housing crisis in Sacramento and around the country. On this week's episode, you'll hear a conversation that touches on the stigma of living unhoused, the hurdles in place for those transitioning into stable shelter, and why a new life off the street isn't always this magic wand to a happier chapter in somebody's life. From Solving Sacramento, this is Housing in the Capital. I'm Nick Bruner. This series features discussions around the topic of housing in California's capital city. And the conversation today is between two people working with organizations to deliver medicine, mental health, and shelter to communities of unhoused people in and around Sacramento. I'm Joseph Smith. I work for Hope Cooperative. I'm the director of the Outreach and Engagement Center and the Homeless Outreach Program. I'm a person with lived experience of chronic unsheltered homelessness. I came off the streets in 2011 after numerous stays with the VOA and then uh, found my way into a temporary housing solution and, and onward to a more permanent uh, kind of solution. And I started working in uh, homelessness services with Loaves and Fishes in 2016. I left there about a year ago to come to Hope Cooperative to run the Outreach and Engagement Center and the Homeless Outreach Program. My name is Anna Darzins, and I am the director at Meadowview Navigation Center. I grew up here in Sacramento. I've been a servant of the city for about 10 years is the way I see it. I um, had a traumatic childhood and, and young adulthood, and so I just had a lot of the same type of experiences, many of our friends in the shelters and out on the street. I didn't know what I was going to do until someone gave me access through education. I just finished my master's at USC. After graduating, I started the first street medicine program here in Sacramento, bringing doctors out to homeless camps, uh, doing primary care and mental health out on the street in riverbanks. After a few years, it was really hard to see uh, any sort of progress. So when I was invited into shelter here at VOA in 2017, um, I was really excited and um, thrilled to see how giving someone a place to, I call it uh, defrost, it's like two weeks uh, after coming indoors where you're doing a little maybe a little less uh, of whatever drug you're doing and resting and sleeping and um, kind of coming off of the adrenaline you've been living off of. You would have um, someone who is stable enough um, and, and ready enough to actually work on, on housing and um, recovery. Working at Loaves and Fishes for all the 
incredible work they do, it was always really hard to shut that gate at the end of the day and see people walk away. Um, you know, ours is a, a 24-hour respite center, Hope Cooperative, and just to have a place to know that the folks that we're serving are going to be safe for the night um, is a big deal because we see what that does for them. We see that, that kind of spark go on. And uh, people, people who were unwilling maybe to even talk about different avenues of transitional living or housing or anything like that, or they start to soften up and they start to, to want that for themselves. It's, it's really pretty miraculous. What's really striking to me is folks that live in doorways downtown uh, and the number of people that walk past them and these uh, individuals may have been assaulted, are hungry, hurt, and uh, kind of invisible to everyone who walks past. In my time of um, working with uh, this population, I've learned that the uh, first thing you can do is recognize their humanity, maybe say hello. doesn't mean you have to put yourself out or make yourself vulnerable, but recognizing someone who may feel ignored by people is is really um, an important thing. It is frightening because there's so much that's not known about the homeless community that it's easy to wonder if like some of the problems in neighborhoods are brought on by this population or um, will increase if they come. What do you think? Everyone wants to be seen and heard. All of us do. You know, people living outside are no different in that way than any other human being. However, they're probably going through some of the most difficult times of their life. And they have no place to grieve what's going on in private. They're doing it right there on the street. And I can't think of too many more horrible things that can happen than to be invisible in the moment when you're in so much pain. You're right to stop and acknowledge the person, to smile at them every once in a while, to say hello or good morning. It starts to let them know that they're not alone. And it keeps reminding us that they're there. And they're just as human as we are. You know, one of the things about the Outreach and Engagement Center is the staff is really personable and how much we have in common in every way to people who are living outside except that great divide. You know, we have a home and they don't. So we try to make it a home for them and the grief starts to come out and the suffering maybe gets a little easier. But for the average person out on the street, they either feel shunned or just completely invisible. Folks that are living outside especially feel um, really frightened about addressing their health care needs because of the fact that when they go uh, and, and interact with doctors or providers, uh, the doctor and provider may have um, a lot of frustration because this person hasn't taken the medication you um, have prescribed and hasn't uh, gotten their labs drawn and isn't engaging their health, and then 
the person who's receiving the care feels like uh, super judged and doesn't want to make the changes because they're just trying to live. Yeah, yeah. The day-to-day, you know, I have to eat tomorrow. I have to stay safe tomorrow. I have to feed my dog tomorrow. I have all these things to do tomorrow, today and tomorrow. Um, how I'm, you know, I, th- I think sometimes some of the things I ran into uh, with the folks in the encampments around loaves and fishes um, was, so you want me to leave my encampment and go get labs drawn or an x-ray done, or you even want me to go to the pharmacy and, and leave my stuff, right? How do I know my stuff's going to be safe, right? This is all I have in the world. I can't leave my stuff. There's, some of them would barely break away long enough to go eat lunch at Loaves and Fishes, but... So I think the, the idea of, you know, street medicine is so important. They kind of had the same thing when they got started was like, who are these people and why would we trust you? And they've actually been doing like weekend outreaches that are just survival supplies, human contact and, and things like that to build trust. And now they're building up the doctor providers behind that that are just so welcomed into the environment because the relationship's already built. But what an uphill time. And they are starting to do more of bringing like medicines to the encampment and they're working on portable diagnostics and things like that. Street medicine is a godsend. And I think it's it's really powerful to go and meet people where they are, um, recognize their humanity and ask if you could help. And I know a lot of times I um, would be met with a lot of um uh, reluctance. And it, it wasn't until I started taking someone's vitals and preparing them for the doctor, you know, that so they're like, oh, wait a minute, I do have something, right? Because until then, they're just thinking you just want their social or their, you know, you you just want their information. And, or um, there were days that I couldn't get anything done. And, and all I did was change some band-aids or wash feet, just because people's, they would keep shoes on for so long that just some relief in, in how having um, an ability to wash feet was amazing. And folks would remember that. And so the next time they saw you, they might be a little uh, more ready. But I remember I was out in front of Bannon once and there was this guy, he said, why are you here? He just, he grilled me for like 20 minutes about why do I do what I do? What's, what's the point? Where are my, where's my funding coming from? And he was uh, very skeptical uh, and it took about 20 minutes. And then finally he says, well, if you want to see some sick people, I, I, I know some. Just because the mistrust of, of systems, right, and especially medical systems uh, that already scare them is, uh, is so profound. They also, I think sometimes um, one of the biggest barriers I see is individuals don't speak the same language providers do. And I, and I know that we hear that a lot, but like one day I remember I, I went to this camp and this man, he says, Anna, you lied. And I said, oh my gosh, what did I lie about? And he says, you said my prescriptions would be there and they weren't. So I'm calling the pharmacy and, you know, they're like, oh yeah, um, the prescription's here, but we don't have his insurance information. So I'm, I gave the information, but then I looked and I said, friend, you walked for miles. And when you got there, you said, do you have prescriptions for me? They said, no. And you just left. You didn't ask any more questions. And that's just a really simple example of how 
um, expectations and language together can be barriers in and of themselves because people don't realize that you should ask. I would say, well, call my doctor, <laughs> right? right? You right. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I know it should be here. I demand service, right? And and for someone who's used to hearing no, they don't know to ask any further and they walk away. The sad part is now when someone asks him to take his medication or go to get labs, he may not, right? Because he's not sure that they'll be there. I remember we had one young lady who, she was pregnant and it was just incredible. She had delivered in an, on the riverbed. Um, so she delivered on the street and uh, this was that child, every child she had had been taken and this just kind of following her and following her through uh, her, uh, what is it, pre preeclampsia. Uh, so she had a condition in a, in addition to being pregnant that uh, made it dangerous and, and following her and then getting her to go into the hospital where that doctor was able then to be part of her delivery was just, it was one of the most meaningful things I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Heroes. During COVID, they didn't stop. They realized early on that when you say you're going to be somewhere, like I'm, I'm going to, my next visit to this camp is going to be in two weeks in the morning. Um, and then two weeks from then in the morning, they were there. They were the most consistent, like, people in their lives throughout that whole epidemic. You know, it's amazing. Coming up in the second half of the episode, a picture of just who is living on the street, where they come from and what trends Anna and Joe see in that population year over year. That's when housing in the capital returns. Support for housing in the capital comes from the Sacramento Business Journal, which features local business news about our region. The Sacramento Business Journal also provides tools to help businesses grow, network, and hire. Read more at bizjournals.com forward slash Sacramento. From Solving Sacramento, it's Housing in the Capital. I'm Nick Bruner. We're listening to Anna Darzins and Joe Smith today, talking about their experiences helping Sacramento's unhoused communities. In this next part, we'll hear about how it could be easy to think that getting an apartment, tiny home, any shelter, as the end game, the biggest problem to address, right? Well, it turns out there are other factors that can play into an entirely different issue altogether. Here's Anna. You said something that really resonated with me, and that is this idea of of having a place uh, to feel safe and be at home. But I, I think that as human beings, we are much more than that, right? And we also need to have a sense of community and meaningful activities, things that we can participate in that bring us joy in order to truly kind of feel whole in, in that sense and find meaning in our lives. Um, but that's really difficult when you have um, experienced some of the extreme trauma that you have out on the street. People are assaulted, sexually assaulted, robbed. They worry about whether or not they're going to survive. They watch others go through these same attacks. And it's just, I think that what we haven't done as a community is we haven't done enough to recognize what are the effects of that and how can we wrap like services around you regarding th that part of your um, recovery. 
So we see people that go into housing all the time, uh, and it's like being hunted, and, and the hunter's gone home, so you don't realize they're not looking for you anymore because you're just triggered on. And so even though you can lock the door, you don't. You, the guy downstairs is following you from room to room, and so you call the cops, and you keep calling the cops until, um, until your landlord evicts you. And so that whole journey to become housed is now taken from you, and you go back to where you started from. We have to think about how people have been affected by what's happened to them. When I when I came off the street into the first place I had, it was a single room in a house that four other people who had had a similar situation to me, and I can remember how difficult it was just to sleep in that room. Just, I don't think people are aware of exactly how difficult it is to, to be out there for so long, like you're saying. And, and come inside and be successful. I swear it was six weeks before I could even resist the urge to jump, just jump out the window. It was, you know, an incredible, incredibly difficult time. And you're right, people are gonna end up right back out on the street. And I can tell you that that is probably, you know, I've been off the street now for over 10 years and that's still my greatest fear, is that one day I might have to go back. And I, I, I think that's a very common fear for a lot of individuals. I'm thinking of one gentleman that uh, had been homeless for about 40 years, a Vietnam veteran. And I remember when we housed him, at first everyone was like, success, this is wonderful. And by 5 p.m., he, uh, he called me and he says, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I wish I were dead. And what we had forgot about was... Um, by removing him from his community, we just essentially placed him in a box and he didn't have, he lost his identity and he, he, his meaning system uh, was gone. And so um, I think that services are, are incredible, but restoring individuals to, to some sort of recovery and, and uh, stabilization also means finding ways to reinvite them back into the community. Uh, and give them their place at the table uh, and, and not just kind of set them away in an apartment and think that it's fine. At the shelter I'm, I'm at right now, I have approximately 50% of the individuals that are there, um, the ladies that are there, are newly homeless. And I may be their very first interaction with uh, services. And I think that we don't know enough about why that's happening because that's feels like a rare occurrence. I've never seen it in all, all my years of working in this, in this field, seeing about half of the individuals that I'm working with that are just newly, newly homeless and have, have never had to do this. I agree with you. I know uh, a couple of really kind of disturbing trends that I'm noticing lately and, and they've been, they've been there all along, but I think, with Sacramento bringing online the coordinated access system has really kind of pulled the sheets back on on the real numbers that are out there. Um, and I think it will continue to be very revealing as this, the system ramps up more and more. The amount of families with children that are on the streets right now. And, and I've, you know, I've been in this now for this work for not quite 10 years, but I never assumed it was as large 
of an amount of families as there are. I've noticed a huge upswing in seniors um, that I can can kind of state like five years ago that that didn't seem to be the case, but today it's more and more. It's every day uh, our folks 55 and older, 65 and older are losing their housing for, for any number of reasons, but all tied back to, you know, rents are too expensive. Uh, their family support system that's with them is, is stretched out themselves, trying to survive. And uh, their benefits, you know, whatever those had that they planned for retirement, just aren't able to meet the need today. You know, they made those plans 20, 40 years ago in their lives, you know, with, with pensions and things like that. And now that they've come to this time of their life when that should all be paying off, it's not cutting it. They, they just can't afford to keep up. How are so many families ending up on the street? You know, what are the situations leading up to that? As many people know, as you, as you know, the likelihood of those children having a very difficult life ahead of them because of the experiences they're having right now is very high. When I was at Loaves and Fishes, the, uh, there was an alarming amount of parents who were bringing their children to the Mustard Seed School who had once been students of the Mustard Seed School too, which is a school for homeless families. We're kind of perpetuating our own, our own situation by not figuring out what's going on and finding ways to, to stop it. What do you think happened? Who are all the people downtown living on the WX corridor and on Alhambra? Um, how is it that uh, that area has just exploded with mega camps? It was quite the, the phenomenon that happened in this population when, when COVID first struck. I was working at Loaves and Fishes at the time, and we had to go out into the surrounding areas to let people know we were even still open and providing services. I mean, we, we obviously modified a lot of things, but we didn't, we didn't stop. But a lot of smaller organizations did. A lot of organizations that provide aid to people living outside, especially in the further away from the downtown core, stopped doing that. Most of them were churches. A lot of them were retired folks that were going out and doing those things. So people started to kind of come out of the creek beds, not entirely, but people who were really reliant on the services that were being brought to them, the services weren't happening anymore. So they went, you know, the closer you focus into downtown, the more services are available, really added to that population. I think also, you know, for, for a long time, camps hadn't been moved and really became overwhelmed with personal belongings and, and litter and, and all kinds of things. As COVID alleviated, they started to, to do enforcement activities on those areas uh, to, you know, uh, remediate whatever, whatever was going on there. Those people were displaced. You know, they were usually smaller camps. The only thing they could do is migrate more to the core that WX area has block after block after block of freeway-covered streets, which, you know, for rain and things like that were really important. We had some really severe storms, which drove people underneath of anything they could to stay dry. It was an interesting kind of migration that happened during that time. 
you know, and I think people are starting to migrate a little bit out of there right now, especially since they're doing more enforcement activities in those areas. Um, but really, the the poor of Sacramento holds the most services, you know, that are within walking distance for folks. I we're we're always talking about shelter beds, and uh, I I think they're really important. Um, but do you think that's the answer? I think. I think it's all the answer, you know, it's um, the prevention piece and then housing options that will, will work for the person. But shelter beds are, are expensive and not everyone wants to go into them. Not all of them are appropriate for a number of people. You know, let's face it, they're meant to be very temporary. I don't know if you've seen this, but I definitely ha uh, have seen this as uh, individuals who've been there so long that on the day that they're intended to move, they're really resistant uh, just because even though living in the shelter is not uh, ideal, they know they're safe. I think what I've noticed is, is, you know, in these temporary solutions, people are finding all those things that we talked about. They're creating community inside those spaces. They're creating relationships with the staff or, or with the other people that are staying there. And yes, of course, they feel safe and welcomed and, and cared for. It's it. Well, it's a longing for all those things. It's a longing for, for that safety and stability. But it's also the fact that they're there too long. I mean, I'm sure there are scientific studies about like what an ideal shelter stay, a maximum ideal shelter stay would be for a person before they start to, to attach roots um, at the shelter. But ideally, we'd like to see people move along within a week into something a little more in the direction of permanency or at least transitional living. You know what I hear a lot is individuals talking about others coming to Sacramento to be homeless. And I don't know about you, but I haven't really found that to be the case. Most of the time, I've found individuals kind of going back to the community that they grew up in to be homeless versus traveling to another city or state. What have you found? My personal experience is, is I made it about a quarter mile away from where I was living to set up my first encampment. I think I'm seeing more of an uptick of people who came here from somewhere else, were housed, had a job, and fell victim to all the, the different things that can lead a person into homelessness. But no one's catching the bus to Sacramento to be homeless. That's not what's happening. A couple times I've seen some people come through, they've, they've, uh, they've taken a look around and decided they were going to go back to where they came from or they were going to try another idea because they start to talk to the folks here who've been going nowhere for 19 months, 24 months. There's not a huge influx of people who are homeless coming here to be homeless. This is homegrown homelessness. I think uh, the barriers to getting people into housing right now are incredible. They're incredible for any of us living in Sacramento right now. But take a person who doesn't have a rental history, who doesn't have income, who doesn't have a credit history, you know, even if they, they may have, you know, a job that's somewhat affordable or a reasonable, you know, benefit, maybe a social security benefit or something, it doesn't fit anywhere. We're heading into an election cycle, and, and I'm not one to get anywhere near politics, but I know that there are a lot of conversations happening in a lot of circles. 
And something I would hope to see, it's already starting to become a trend and really expand, is more people getting involved in conversations about solutions. Normally, solutions come to the table, and typically a, a, a smaller group of really vocal individuals say, no, not here, not, we, don't, we don't want this here. But if we don't want it here and we don't want it there, then it doesn't end up anywhere. So I hope as we move into this next cycle of elections where we bring in new people and new energy into our climate, that more people are willing to have that conversation, to talk about these things in their congregations, in their community groups, in their workplaces, in their families, to say, well, maybe we can sit down and, and listen and see what we can work out instead of just meeting these things with a solid no, not here mentality. Find out more about the work of Anna Darzins and the Volunteers of America, voa-ncnn.org. Joe Smith works at Hope Cooperative online at hopecoop.org. We'd love your housing questions, your comments, your experiences with your unhoused community. Send us an email, info at solvingsacramento.org. Check out that website. It's where you'll find articles around housing in the city from our journalism partners, including Cap Radio, Outward, Russian American Media, the Sacramento Business Journal, Sacramento News and Review, Sacramento Observer, and Univision 19. With the patience of a monument, Solving Sacramento's project manager is Sina Christian. The project editor is Kat Graziosi. This episode was recorded, produced, and hosted by me, Nick Bruner. Our theme music is by Lillian Francis, who is forever doing something cool. Find out all about it by following her on all of the socials or by visiting LillianFrancisMusic.com. Next time. Okay, look, it's not the only topic next week, but boy, does it take center stage. Stay subscribed, and we'll see you then. This podcast is supported by funding from the Solutions Journalism Network.